This episode of the Australia in the World podcast is produced with the support of the Australian Institute of International Affairs, an independent, non-profit organisation promoting interest in and understanding of international affairs in Australia by providing a forum for discussion and debate. The views expressed in this podcast are those of the speakers themselves and not the institutional views of the AIIA. Welcome back to the Australia in the World podcast. My name is Darren Lim from the School of Politics and International Relations at the Australian National University, and I am here with Alan Gingell, National President of the Australian Institute of International Affairs. Hello, Alan. Hi there, Darren. Well, this is our final news-related podcast of 2018, and today our recording date is the 27th of November. However, for those of our listeners who have gotten used to your fortnightly fix of Australia and the world, do not despair. We have two interviews already recorded, one with Dennis Richardson, one of the most distinguished public servants in Australia's history, and a discussion of all things cyber with Danielle Cave and Tom Uren of the Australian Strategic Policy Institute, ASPE. We are still in the process of editing these, but you should expect to see them in your feeds before Christmas. Now, before we get into today's discussion, a word on the future. Including the episodes recorded but still to be released, we will have completed 11 in total of Australia in the World, the first attempt at podcasting for the both of us. It's been a fantastic experience and one that we are hoping to continue into 2019. We are still discussing exactly how we will proceed in terms of format, but one thing I am hoping we will do is look to engage more with you, our listeners. I have created a dedicated email address, australia.world.pod at gmail.com, and I invite you to email us with topics you would like to hear discussed or specific questions for either or both of us, plus, of course, feedback on how you think we are doing so far. I am also on Twitter, so you can always tweet at me if you can say what you need to say in 240 characters or less. I will put the email address in the show notes and publicize it more in future episodes. All this is to say, please don't forget about us over the summer. And one thing you can do, if you haven't already, is to subscribe and leave us a rating on iTunes. Okay, on today's episode, our major focus will be the regional summary of recent weeks, which I think really offers us a window into international affairs over the past year, especially US-China rivalry. So we will cover ASEAN, the East Asia Summit, APEC, and we will also look forward to the G20 Leaders Summit that will occur at the end of this week. And finally, we'll finish with a postscript on the Jamal Khashoggi murder. Let's get started. So number one, regional summitry. Before we get into the substance, let me simply try to list the different meetings that happened in the middle of November. On Tuesday the 13th, things kicked off with the Association of Southeast Asian Nations, ASEAN, their summit, followed by ASEAN nations holding a series of bilateral summits with China, Japan and South Korea that also comprise ASEAN plus three, as well as bilaterals with the US, Russia and even Australia. We apparently get an informal breakfast summit. All of these happened in Singapore, which was chairing ASEAN this past year, And as far as I can tell, this all happened in the space of about 1.5 days, a day and a half. Everyone I just mentioned, all those countries, plus India, then participated in the East Asia Summit, also held in Singapore, 
before everyone got on planes and flew to Papua New Guinea for APEC, Asia-Pacific Economic Cooperation, a two-day summit that ended on Sunday the 18th. Of course, not everyone attended these summits. Donald Trump skipped the entire week, and Xi Jinping only attended APEC. To begin, Alan, then, at the risk of our podcast becoming a bit too didactic, please indulge me on this one. What do you see as the headline purpose of these three main events, ASEAN, the EAS, and APEC? And as a follow-up, how do they manage to fit in so many meetings in five days? And isn't everyone just seeing the same people each day for that period? Why couldn't they create some version of the UN Leaders Week in one city and just do everything in one place? You can't be too didactic, uh, Darren. <laughs> Look, the, the uh, ASEAN bilaterals and the EAS are all part of the same uh, family of meetings. These are the ones centred on ASEAN, which organises them and uh, shares them. They have a broad uh, political and security agenda, and most importantly, of course, they include India. So it's a sort of an Indo-Pacific framework. APEC is uh, separate. It's not organised through ASEAN. It's formally a bunch of economies, and that's the way in which we get Taiwan and uh, Hong Kong included in them. Australia had a really important formative role with uh, all of them. We were the first of ASEAN's dialogue partners uh, back in the day. Hawke, uh, Evans and Keating were behind APEC itself, and Rudd was a key figure in the establishment of the EAS. So there may be a lot of meetings, but you can uh, contrast it with the lack of contact there was before before APEC when there was no uh, informal way in which the leaders of uh, Japan and China and the and the US could could ever get together at all. So we're, we're better off than we were then. And I assume these days APEC always happens in the immediate aftermath of the yeah, ASEAN yeah, meetings. Yeah, they're, they're, they're coordinated so that people don't have to um, make the Fly the back and forth, twice. yes, yes. Yeah. So another preliminary question, Alan. Donald Trump did not attend the week's meetings, sending Vice President Mike Pence in his stead. And we'll get to what Pence said in a moment. In contrast, Xi Jinping did attend the APEC summit in PNG, but did not attend the Singapore meetings with ASEAN and the EAS, with Premier Li Keqiang representing China. How should we understand these different approaches to who goes and, and who doesn't go? Well, look, it was, a, it was a pity about Trump. You sort of got the sense that he really couldn't be asked turning up. Other US presidents have, have skipped one or two or two or three, I think, in the, in the past, but it's usually been because of crises in Washington, uh, close downs of, uh, of government and so on. And it certainly sent, sent mixed messages about uh, US resolve. You know, clarity from the vice president is no substitute if you think that the president may have his own views and may uh, may override it. We talked about the Pence speech on China a couple of weeks ago. I'm still dwelling on that because it really was uh, very strange if you think that the US-China relationship is, as we're hearing increasingly in Washington, the most important strategic issue for the US uh, in the uh, years ahead. And I was trying to imagine whether Ronald Reagan, 
for example, would ever have deputed George H.W. Bush, his vice president, to give a major speech on the Soviet Union. It just, you know, wouldn't have happened. So it's, it's odd. On, on the Chinese side, it's simply a division of responsibilities. I think uh, the president has always attended the APEC meetings and the premier has always gone along to the uh, EAS. But there's certainly a sense that China is turning up at senior levels and in force to these. Okay, well, let's turn to the summits themselves and we'll go roughly in chronological order, starting in Singapore with the ASEAN meetings and the East Asia Summit, which I think laid bare the concerns member states in Southeast Asia have about US-China relations. On the American side, Pence said that the United States saw ASEAN as a, quote, irreplaceable strategic partner before making strong and very thinly veiled criticism of China saying, quote, We all agree that empire and aggression have no place in the Indo-Pacific. Pence also said that, quote, Our vision for the Indo-Pacific excludes no nation. It only requires that every nation treat their neighbours with respect. They respect the sovereignty of our nations and the international rules of order. In reporting, I even saw that Pence may have said the phrase militarisation is illegal, much to everyone's surprise, in the context of the South China Sea. We can contrast that with uh, the Chinese Premier, Li Keqiang, who wanted to reassure the ASEAN states and suggested that China wanted to minimise issues in the South China Sea via developing a code of conduct and emphasising, of course, that the resolution of South China Sea issues should be between the countries involved without the outside intervention of other states. Of course, that would include the US. Alan, before we turn to the reactions of the other states, did you see anything new or especially interesting from the major powers at these summits? We certainly saw a sharper and more direct willingness on the part of the US to confront China and the articulation in uh, in greater detail of its commitment to uh, what's now becoming referred to as the free and open Indo-Pacific, the the FOIP. We also saw from China, I think, an effort to establish its position as the defender of globalisation, the sober defender of the global order. At, At APEC, Xi Jinping gave a comprehensive and pretty thoughtful, I I thought, speech about that in which large chunks could have been taken from any Australian minister's uh, speech and the importance of the rules of global trade and so on. Well, it would seem that any optimism that these summits might resolve or reduce the tensions in the South China Sea were dashed even before ASEAN began, as the National Security Advisor for the US, John Bolton, announced that the US would increase its forces in the region and patrols in the South China Sea. While during the summit, there were US naval forces, two carrier groups, I believe, in the sea to the west of the Philippines. I'm reminded of Pence's speech at the Hudson Institute in early October, which you already raised, Alan, in which the vice president stated, quote, the US Navy will fly, sail, and operate anywhere international law allows, end quote. He would also echo a similar theme at APEC a few days later. Now, as for a code of conduct between the various South China Sea claimants, a document that I note has been discussed or under discussion for decades, the parties still seem far away from resolution. Earlier this year, it was reported that a clause in the draft document would prevent any country from holding joint military exercises with a country from outside the region without the consent of the parties involved. 
meaning, for example, that a U.S. treaty ally such as the Philippines could not conduct joint drills without China's permission. The mood of the non-major powers to all these events was perhaps best captured by Singapore's Prime Minister Lee Hsien Loong, who in remarks to reporters said, quote, It is very desirable for us not to have to take sides, but the circumstances may come where ASEAN may have to choose one or the other. I hope it does not happen soon, end quote. Now, Alan, the Prime Minister's remarks, of course, stand in contrast to the insistence by Australia's leaders for a very long time that we won't have to take sides between the US and China. Might he be right, Alan, with respect to ASEAN states? And what can non-ASEAN states like us learn from the ASEAN perspective? We've had a couple of examples recently of the Prime Minister repeating the uh, mantra that Australia doesn't have to choose between China and the US. And of course, that's true in, a, in an existential sense. I doubt that it will ever come down to the question of, uh, you know, Chinese saying, uh, give up the ANZUS Treaty or uh, we'll stop trading uh, with you. But in the real world, we are having to make choices every day between the two sides. And in fact, the last two weeks have seen plenty of examples of that. And those, uh, those uh, demands on us to make choices are going to get more insistent. I think ASEAN doesn't have all that much to teach us. Our positions are very uh, different. Australia is an ally of the United States and an old and intimate uh, ally. So the, um, and, and we're also heavily dependent on China for, uh, for trade. So we've got to make our own decisions about, uh, about these things. I was wondering whether or not the ASEAN experience might be important for what Australia could face down the track. So if they're squeezed on a particular issue like the South China Sea, that might suggest that in the near future, Australia might face similar hard choices. You don't think so? Oh, well, no, I think, we're, I think, we've, I think we are facing hard choices already, already and I think we're making the, uh, making the decisions. Turning then to the APEC summit in Port Moresby, now, this, of course, is an economic meeting, uh, which in the past have been fairly prosaic, one might say boring affairs. This year, however, things would be very different. And what we saw, I think, also you know, emphasised the competitive rather than the cooperative relationship between the US and China, not just in the security domain, but also in the economic one. The headline outcome was the failure of leaders to agree on a joint communique, a joint statement. Reporting in the US media, at least, suggested that the sticking point was the following phrase, quote, We agreed to fight protectionism, including all unfair trade practices, end quote. Now, it was reported, again, mostly in the US media, that this was a sentence being pushed by the US, but rejected by China. In the words of the hosts, Papua New Guinea and Prime Minister Peter O'Neill, quote, You all know who the two big giants in the room were, so what can I say? Alan, there's more to discuss, but first I want to ask, what generally is the significance of these communiques? And therefore, what is the significance of the lack of one this time around? I think it is uh, important. Um, not all APEC communiques over the years have been richly meaningful. Uh, but we've always managed to, uh, to get them out before. One issue here may have been that the uh, the chair has an important role to play in these things, and uh, Peter, Peter O'Neill, the uh, Papua New Guinea uh, Prime Minister, was unused to wrangling large countries in the way that Lee Sien Lung in um, 
uh, in Singapore was. Uh, it might also be that the tensions uh, and uh, stakes were higher because Xi Jinping uh, was uh, was there. But look, I have to say that it all seems really weird to me. I've read I read the PNG chair's statement that was issued in lieu of a communique, and there seems nothing at all in it that conflicts with past APEC statements. I mean, I, I don't see how the Chinese couldn't sign on to a line, we agreed to fight protectionism, including all unfair trade practices, by interpreting it as a criticism of the uh, of the US. They agreed in the East Asia Summit communique to the words, some leaders emphasise the importance of shared prosperity and being able to compete freely and fairly. We also noted the importance of efforts to improve the functioning of the World Trade Organisation, including its monitoring, rulemaking and dispute settlement functions. So it's not at all clear what, uh, what happened here. Well, I think weirdness may end up being a theme of this discussion Continuing on the dueling superpowers theme, at least, in his speech, Pence had the following one-liner, quote, we don't drown our partners in a sea of debt. We don't coerce or compromise your independence. We do not offer a constricting belt or one-way road, end quote. Zing. Later in the speech, (laughs) (laughs) later in the speech, he said, let me say with great respect to all the nations across this wider region and the world, Do not accept foreign debt that could compromise your sovereignty. Protect your interest. Preserve your independence. And just like America, always put your country first. In line with this theme, Pence announced that the US would work to promote civil society, the rule of law, and transparent and accountable governance via a $400 million Indo-Pacific transparency program to quote, empower citizens to combat corruption and strengthen sovereignty. This complements other announcements in recent months regarding a scaled-up U.S. infrastructure investment program and the potential involvement of the private sector. On the other side, we have China. And in contrast to Pence's very strong language, my read is that China was trying to cast itself as the reasonable one, and you've already spoken to this, Alan, to contrast itself with the chaos of the Trump White House and its hostility to international institutions and, of course, the trade war. In his speech, Xi Jinping said, quote, confrontation, whether in a cold war, hot war or trade war, will produce no winner, end quote. And he called upon officials to, quote, reject arrogance and prejudice. The president also rejected criticism that the Belt and Road Initiative created any kind of debt trap and really appeared to cast himself as a leader of the developing world, offering a model that could benefit other developing countries. Quote, Many of the entrepreneurs present here are witnesses, contributors and beneficiaries of China's reform and opening up, and have formed an indissoluble bond with China. Alan, contrasting the strong language of Pence with the language of Xi Jinping, how do you see this contrast against the broader fault lines between the two major powers over the past 12 to 18 months? 
Yeah, look, I think the respective pictures are becoming uh, clearer. China is saying we have the uh, the means and the map, the belt and the road to uh, help you in your uh, in your march towards uh, success, while the US is countering uh, more defensively about the uh, the side effects and playing to some legitimate uh, concerns about China's. Uh, Growing uh, weight and uh, and behaviour. On the other hand, I think we are beginning to see from the Americans more um, more substance, more sort of practical uh, efforts to uh, to respond as well, including in uh, some of the infrastructure programs that were announced while uh, Pence was in the region. That's interesting because if it's true that we might be seeing more substance and dare I say it coherence from the Pence speech in October at the Hudson Institute through to his speeches now and the policy announcements that have accompanied them. Is it possible that it's Trump's absence that actually assists in this, that the, if you remove the distraction of his presence and people watching to see what he'll say and whether he'll make any mistakes or faux pas, that allows a more coherent story? Yes, albeit without the support from the highest level, but at least a signal to the rest of the world and to the region that there are policymakers and leaders in Washington um, who do have an agenda that they're trying to push. I mean, can we be a little bit, not optimistic, but at least can we see a clearer signal here or do you not put much store in that without Trump's backing? Well, as I said before, uh, Darren, I mean, I I don't really think that unless you've got the President of the United States and the Commander-in-Chief on side, messages at other levels really don't have the same effect. The leaders of the region know perfectly well that Donald Trump is the President of the United States, not Pence, and that it's him that in the end that they have to deal with. So it's certainly neater. Uh, The story is, uh, you know, is uh, written better and bound in uh, in nicer binding, but it's no substitute for a whole-of-administration response. I, I just wonder whether or not we're entering a new era of politics where we are going to get more leaders elected on mandates that are radically different, on agendas that are radically different from the status quo, but which are very incomplete you can be a populist who was elected for specific reasons and with specific uh, grievances to prosecute. And there are large parts of the policy universe and in particular in foreign policy where you may not have particularly well-formed views and you may see more deputising to you know, vice presidents or the bureaucracy or to the leadership of, of these issues. And that might become more normal and so that we might need to read less uh, into the absence of, of a real commitment from leaders in trying to determine policy. Now, of course, this doesn't mean that when in crisis scenarios, you know, that you can't replace the, the, the belief and the political commitment resolve of leaders. But it just see, it strikes me that this might not be the last time we are distinguishing between a leader and an agenda of the entire government. Oh, the fantasy of officials all over the world. <laughs> if only they left it to us, we could, uh, we could organise the world so neatly and efficiently and it all would be fine. This is the sort of adults in the room yes. stuff that you were yes. hearing about in the first uh, days of the uh, Trump administration. I don't buy it. Certainly officials and uh, others can work behind the scenes to... Um, you know, make things more efficient than they might otherwise be. But it's the leadership at the top 
that uh, matters. And we do have, I mean, it, it is the vice president, it is Congress. It's not just Mandarins that's true. like no, you that's used true. to be. That, no, yeah. no, no, that is true. That's uh, true. I, I accept that. Okay, anyway, moving on to Chinese diplomacy in PNG for that week. And this is where things get a bit weird and I'll have to be very careful of how I describe this because there was a lot of attention paid to what the Chinese were doing. First, uh, President Xi met with uh, the PNG PM, Peter O'Neill, touring Independence Boulevard, a road near the parliament that was constructed with Chinese assistance and apparently is now was lined with you know, red flags or Chinese flags. Moreover, she invited to his hotel the leaders of eight Pacific Island nations that have no diplomatic relations with Taiwan, including the hosts, PNG and Fiji. He did not, of course, invite six others that maintain such ties with Taipei, including the Solomon Islands and Kiribati. The frame here, I think, is offering engagement and economic assistance and enhanced partnership with those eight countries, perhaps to build pressure on the remainder to switch their recognition policy. But more directly on this theme of of, of weirdness, one of the notable stories to come out of the APEC meetings was the behaviour of Chinese diplomats. According to media reporting, and I stress this was US outlets that were taking the lead on this, mid-ranking Chinese officials demanded a meeting with the PNG's foreign minister who was leading negotiations around the communique that, of course, didn't happen and that the Chinese were very unhappy with and that these officials forced their way into the foreign minister's office and had to be escorted away by police after a confrontation. The Chinese denied this, and the PNG police refused to comment. International media were also barred from the meeting that she hosted with Pacific leaders um, that I've just discussed. And there was even a report by uh, from the Washington Post that the internet crashed for reporters during Pence's speech in what was you know, thinly veiled as an inference about a cyber attack because it was restored as soon as the speech was finished. Now, this one Washington Post article that was authored by Josh Rogan labelled or quoted a US diplomat labelling these actions tantrum diplomacy. And whether or not that's a fair label, there have been, I note, multiple instances in recent years where the specific conduct of Chinese officials has made headlines. At the Pacific Islands Forum in September, Chinese officials uh, argued with their Nauruan hosts after border authorities refused to accept their diplomatic passports because Nauru recognises Taiwan, and that caused a bit of a stir. I also recall here in Australia an episode in Perth in early 2017 at an intergovernmental meeting about conflict diamonds, of all things, where the Chinese delegation shouted over Australia's official Indigenous welcome ceremony in order to force the suspension of proceedings and the removal of the Taiwanese delegation. So there is a precedent here. What do we make of this, Alan? I mean, if we believe the reporting, it sounds like a known goal that is quite inconsistent with the numerous successes that the Chinese foreign ministry and diplomats have racked up in recent years. But as you've said already, Alan, it's a bit weird. How do you see these events? As you say, Darren, it's unclear what uh, went on. There are conflicting claims all over the place. It's certainly true that um, Chinese officials get more apprehensive and nervous and unsettled when Xi Jinping is in town and determined to demonstrate that they're uh, following the party line. I think it's an example of the way in which China is still learning how to be a a big power. Uh, Some of the things they're getting right 
Uh, I thought Xi Jinping's uh, speech mm. in Moresby was one of those things, and some of the things they're still uh, they're still getting uh, hopelessly wrong. I don't actually think the Chinese can be blamed for not inviting states that don't recognise it to meetings <laughs> with their that's president. That's pretty normal diplomatic practice. Fair enough. Fair enough. A couple of other sideline events are worth mentioning. First, Vice President Pence announced that the United States, Australia and Papua New Guinea would upgrade and expand the joint military base at Lombrum on Manus Island. The base, which was originally built by US forces in 1944, was used as a launch pad to help retake the Pacific from Japanese forces and support the American campaign to liberate the Philippines in World War II. American troops at the time built a runway and wharves on the island. Now, of course, the island sits astride the southern approaches to the South China Sea, and so this decision, this announcement, can only be seen through such a geostrategic lens. However, the PNG Foreign Minister, Rimbing Kapato, said that many details were still to be worked out, including the extent of the US involvement. Moreover, the governor of Manus was critical of the plan and said that nobody had spoken to him or the local community. Alan, with the caveat that we still don't know very much yet, is this a step in the right direction? Is it too provocative? What's your read of this announcement? Well, as you say, we don't know much uh, on this and so so many other uh, dimensions of the past few days, but certainly the early reports of a new US-Australian naval base, a sort of a Pearl Harbour at uh, at Manus were, were seriously overblown. We, we already knew that Australia was committed to help PNG build a new wharf um, at Lumbrun. Uh, the American addition seems to have come late in the piece and certainly transforms it, in my view anyway, from being a useful piece of Australian defence support and infrastructure building in PNG to being a sort of a, a, a major symbol in the geopolitical uh, struggle. My own view is that it was a mistake for the Americans to come on board. I think it complicates a good initiative. Sam Rogovine from uh, Lowy pointed out that we or PNG could easily have uh, have, uh, invited the Americans to send ships uh, once it was uh, built. I note that the decision's already been criticised publicly as uh, provocative by a senior aide to President Duterte of the Philippines, Mm. and I wouldn't be surprised if there was concern in Indonesia as well, uh, uh, perhaps for different reasons about about it. What's interesting to me is that one of the major concerns um, of the region is retrenchment by the United States, a fear that they won't you know, come in to stick up for the order and for the status quo. But when an announcement is made, even if it's sort of window dressing on an existing uh, plan, the region then suddenly says, oh, hang on, uh, this might be a bit too provocative. You said in an earlier podcast, Alan, uh, you know, we want the US to do exactly what we want them to do yeah. and nothing yeah. different yeah, to yeah, that. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. uh, and yeah. so it strikes me that the, if you are sitting in Washington, you're saying, hang on, we're demonstrating an enhanced resolve um, to create a deterrent in the region, a military deterrent. That is going to ruffle some feathers and you are going to be required to put some skin in the game and possibly ruffle feathers in Beijing if you want us to, to, to do likewise. What's wrong with that you know, perspective if that's indeed what the US is, would be thinking? Well, I think there are ways in which the Americans could have demonstrated resolve and we could have assisted them to demonstrate 
resolve which are not this. The, the, the problem with this, I think, is that it's all in PNG's hands. Scott Morrison was unable to give any details, said it was all an, uh, a PNG initiative. Uh, it's, it's trying to build up something which is really quite small. Um, you know the building of a, a of a, a wharf and some uh, and some support facilities. I think the message would have been better as Australia and PNG uh, two regional countries working together. Yes. To uh, to uh, reinforce uh, our own uh, security capabilities. It really does, though, make me think of the rock and a hard place metaphor. You involve the U.S. in something like this, and and you're, you know, criticised or questioned for you know it being unnecessary and, and bad policy. You refuse their involvement if they're willing, and they say, "Well, you know, why do you want us to be here in the first place?" Maybe that would be unreasonable, but you could imagine a Trump administration saying something along those lines. This is how we want to be involved, um, and a much smaller country like Australia and certainly PNG not having much ability to say no. We don't know what happened, but that dynamic wouldn't surprise me given the character of this administration. Anyway, let's finish off our APEC discussion with a piece that Peter Harcher wrote for the Fairfax Papers, quoting Mike Green of the US think tank, the Centre for Strategic and International Studies based in DC. And that quote was, the Trump administration doesn't care about multilateral forums. They're happy to blow APEC up. And China is happy to blow it up too. End quote. Alan, what is APEC's future? Uh, and can Australia do anything to help save it if indeed it is in trouble? Well, we should try. Um, uh, Mike Green is certainly correct in that there's no great commitment on the part of the two big powers to APEC at the moment. But APEC from the beginning was really a middle power uh, initiative. It, it began with Australia and uh, and South Korea. Uh, Indonesia was really important in the formative uh, years. And it was designed to prevent an economic split down the Pacific. Now, that objective remains as important uh, as ever for those, for those very middle uh, middle powers. So we ought to um, be working as hard as we can to use APEC uh, for to reinforce the normative uh, commitment to open regionalism, which has been at the heart of, uh, of uh, APEC. Chile is in the chair uh, next year. That means that, again, we're going to have one of the smaller and uh, more uh, peripheral countries uh, leading it. Uh, so I think that's going to put great weight on Australia and our and, and our and our friends to uh, do what we can to reinforce the underlying purpose of APEC. It's also going to mean a much longer flight from the ASEAN meetings <laughs> over across to Chile. <laughs> All right, turning to the G20, which will be held in Argentina. The Leaders Summit will be held in Argentina later this week, from the 30th of November to the 1st of December. It will be the place in which Trump and Xi are slated to meet and even Pence's apex speech envisaged potential for progress between the two powers on the trade war. It also could escalate tensions or maybe de-escalate tensions between Turkey and Saudi Arabia as both President Erdogan and Mohammed bin Salman, MBS, are reportedly scoping a meeting on the sidelines. 
one of the major themes of the summit this year is the future of work, which has been and could be interpreted very differently by, by different countries, diverging on the role of technology in shaping future economic growth. It is also the 10-year anniversary of the G20's upgrade to a leaders' forum. And you'll remember back in 2008, that was done in response to the global financial crisis. Australia's G20 Sherpa, David Gruen, recently described the forum as a fire department, essential in times of crisis, but something that must be maintained even during non-crisis times. He said this in his speech at the Lowy Institute, that it is an important forum for cooperation in a world that is no longer dominated by a single superpower and will become more important as the economic power of the G7 economies declines relative to the growth of emerging economies. Gruen himself was optimistic about the future of the G20, but also said that we have to be realistic about what it can achieve. It doesn't have coercive powers, and it will be unable to resolve fundamental disagreements between states. The trade war between Washington and Beijing is unlikely to find complete resolution at the summit, but it may provide a means for Xi and Trump to open a discourse, perhaps a minor, make a minor agreement to reduce the competition between the two. Alan, where does the G20 sit in the multilateral landscape in 2018? Do you think it can still be maintained effectively as a fire department? And can it be more than that? Well, look, the G20 is really, really important because it has all the major states there. It has the G7, uh, the P5 members of the United Nations, it has the BRICS, and most importantly, if you're sitting here in Canberra, it has us. Mm. Um, and that's why Kevin Rudd fought so hard to uh, to get it uh, established. So it has the right membership to do things in the world, but the uh, the challenges are certainly getting greater. I was struck, uh, David uh, Gruen in his, in his speech mentioned that the uh, 2016 G20 communique had included commitments on the part of all the members to implement the ch- climate change obligations contained in the Paris uh, Agreement and to support a, quote, rules-based, open, transparent trade system with the WTO at its centre. Two years ago, those those were the days. The G20 uh, certainly can't be more than a fire brigade, and even to get it to perform that function uh, is going to be uh, difficult but the issue is, if not the G20, who? Mm. Uh, as David said, the G7 um, can't, uh, can't do it alone. So the outcome of this meeting in, uh, in Argentina will really be an important signal, I think, of the health of the entire multilateral system. Finally today, let's move to Jamal Khashoggi. Regular listeners will remember that we discussed his assassination, his murder, a few episodes ago. In, in Turkey, in Istanbul, in the Saudi consulate. Here is the latest. In mid-November, uh, reporting in the US papers, and I'm not sure whether it was leaks or on-background information from the CIA, was that it had concluded through sort of multiple sources of intelligence that Crown Prince Mohammed bin Salman, MBS, was involved with Khashoggi's assassination, despite denials from the Saudi royal family about any involvement. One telling piece of evidence was a phone call between MBS's brother, Khalid, who I believe is the ambassador in Washington, and Khashoggi, in which Khalid had assured Khashoggi that he would be safe if he went to the consulate in Istanbul. 
And there was also audio from Turkish intelligence that apparently indicates or shows that Khashoggi was killed shortly after entering the consulate. The US has since placed sanctions on 17 individuals involved in the killing. Now, what's interesting about this particular update is how it illustrates the divide between Trump and his administration. Despite these CIA conclusions and Treasury's actions to sanction relevant individuals, Trump has consistently resisted attributing blame to MBS himself. He said that the CIA simply had feelings on the matter, and he has reiterated his transactional, mercantilist view of foreign policy, essentially saying, do we want... Um, to give up the, the hundreds of thousands of jobs and million, hundreds of millions of dollars in contracts that we get from Saudi, which would otherwise go to China and Russia, and emphasising this sort of transactional view of foreign policy. He resisted criticising the Saudi government because, quote, if we went by this standard, we wouldn't be able to have anybody as an ally. Now, things are happening below the presidential level, and perhaps US Congress will step up into this issue But I want to take a different angle, which is Trump again refusing to accept the assessments of his intelligence agencies. And I'm reminded of a similar scenario playing out earlier this year when he had his summit with Vladimir Putin in Helsinki, when in public, with Putin in the room standing next to him, he refused to endorse the findings of the intelligence community that Russia had interfered with the 2016 presidential election. In both cases, it seems that Trump is placing his personal interests in supporting foreign leaders, which in many ways have diametrically opposed value sets over his own people and his own institutions in particular. And it was shocking to me, even if it wasn't particularly surprising. Alan, what was your reaction? Well, American intelligence uh, agencies obviously wanted the news out there as a former head of an intelligence agency here, I don't think I approve of that. Intelligence agencies, I don't think, should be freewheeling on their own uh, on their own part. But I was shocked by the directness of uh, what is normally hidden in Trump's uh, response. That is the blatantly transactional uh, uh, nature of uh, of his uh, comments. I'm I'm not myself sure that any other U.S. administration would have come out in a hugely different place. That is, I think that the importance of the Saudi uh, relationship, uh, the importance over the long term of the crown prince uh, would probably have led even a, a democratic administration to move on in some way through through this. But they certainly wouldn't have expressed it uh, that way. We've got an American president unlike any other we've seen in my lifetime. Someone asked me the other, the other day, when was the last time I'd heard reference to the United States as the leader of the free world? Uh, well, the answer is that two years, really, since the uh, Trump administration took office. If it's true that this is not that much of a departure, more just a blunt statement of, of of what has always been done. Is that honesty, does that increase our level of cynicism or does it decrease it? In some ways, is it better that this, you know, the, the fiction, um, if that's true, that, that, that the US is, is willing to uphold standards with respect to a, an ally with whom, you know, does unsavoury things? Is it better that we're, it's all out there so people like us are talking about it, so the media is able to inform the public? 
um, of the cynicism of the policy, or should would it have been better if if we had just sort of moved on with a bit of criticism? Look, I don't think it's uh, correct to describe it as cynical. All policy, uh, all foreign policy, has to in, engage a whole range of different issues, interests, and uh, and uh, values. There's nothing cynical about believing that the or stating that the United States has important economic interests in Saudi Arabia. There's nothing cynical about saying that it uh, that it. Uh, wants the Saudis to be on side against disruptors like uh, like Iran, but the way in which the the sort of rather crude way in which Trump expressed it, I don't think helps us to uh, to sort of mould all these things together. Maybe a silver lining is that because it was a Washington Post columnist and it has gotten significant attention that someone like me who doesn't normally study the region, has paid a lot of attention to it, is a good thing. That it, it, I think that's right, Alan, that maybe I'm wrong to describe it as cynicism, but that's certainly what I felt emotionally mm. when I saw what he was saying, not just vis-a-vis Saudi, but also his you know, disconnect with his own administration. And so at least it's out there, we can see it for what it is, and, and a new generation of, of policymakers and, and, and informed citizens can take that on board and perhaps I mean, some good will come of it. Okay, well, our final segment, as always, is reading, listening, and watching. Alan, what have you been reading, listening, or watching? I've been reading uh, Kai-Fu Lee's AI Superpowers, China, Silicon Valley, and the New World Order. Lee is a Taiwanese-American, an AI expert who formerly worked for Microsoft and then was the head of uh, Google in China, and now he's a venture capitalist. His argument has caused some controversy, but he's essentially saying that the next round of competition in AI will be won by the side that has the most data to facilitate machine learning, and that will be China. Maybe more uh, worrying, however, is his assertion of how comprehensively China and the US between them will dominate the future AI world and the consequences this will have for the development paths of other uh, developing countries. Uh, He quotes PwC is expecting these two countries, that is China and the US, to capture a full 70% of the 15.7 trillion that AI will add to the global economy by 2030. And for a really pessimistic take on the implications of AI for democracy, I'd also add an article by the Israeli historian Yuval Noah Harari in the latest edition of the Atlantic magazine, uh, Why Technology uh, Favours Tyranny, which is uh, something we really got to begin to get our minds around here. Well, I have nothing nearly as deep and complex as that. As I said in the last episode, it's been a busy end to the year for me and I have done no serious extra reading. But I did see a film. I am a big Harry Potter fan and so I saw the new Fantastic Beasts, The Crimes of Grindelwald, which was okay. It wasn't great. Uh, it was more of a first chapter in a, in, a, in, a, in a book rather than a complete movie on its own. All I will say is that I really enjoy the Ringer website, theringer.com, and the work of Mallory Rubin and Jason Concepcion, who have a podcast called Binge Mode, in which they unpack every Harry Potter book and indeed every Game of Thrones episode. Uh, They go deep, and it's almost like sitting in an an English literature class 
listening to them, but a lot more fun, even more fun than I imagine an English literature class would be. So Binge Mode is the podcast. The website is theringer.com. And it's Mallory Rubin and Jason Concepcion for all things Harry Potter. Well, that is all for today's episode of Australia in the World. We want to thank AAA intern Stephanie Rowell, our research assistant, and Manny Bavell, our audio engineer, Martin Pierce of the Crawford School for Technical Support, Rory Stenning for composing our theme music, and last but not least, AAA CEO Melissa Conley-Tyler for her support. Thank you and talk to you again soon.